welcome you to Doxodeo Hatfield, a multi-ethnic family on mission, passionate about Jesus, passionate about community, and passionate about serving the city of Chwaneka. Great, Dr. Hadfield, so open up your Bible with me to the book of John chapter 5, not 2, as it says there. John chapter 5, and we are taking another step in our series in the book of John as we are saying, come and see who Jesus is as we're preaching through this book. And we're saying the book of John has this incredible capacity to introduce people to Jesus and to reintroduce Christians to Jesus, to his truth, his grace, his beauty, his love. He is the most captivating human to ever live. And we want to ask people, we want to say to our hearts again, come and see. Now, today's going to be a bit different. We've been speaking about sexuality and money and status and suffering and big topics already in these first couple of chapters. But today, I want to say, today's not going to be in our usual style. It's not going to be preaching as much as it is teaching. Preaching is about lifting Jesus to the place of worship in all of our hearts from the Scriptures. But Jesus also says we need to worship God with our heart, soul, strength, and mind. And I want to tell you that as we are endeavoring in the series to say we want to be people who introduce our friends, neighbors, and colleagues to Jesus in a very natural way, we need to wrestle with some of the questions that people in this room that I'm asking, you asking, and some of your friends, neighbors, colleagues, and family members are wrestling with, whether very vocally or in their hearts. If we don't speak about these things, we will never become a church who takes the good news to our city. So we're going to dive into one of those topics, and I want you to put on your thinking hat today, because we're going to wrestle with some of these things and make the invitation to come and see. So let's read together. John chapter 5. So after this, a Jewish festival took place, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. By the Sheep Gate in Jerusalem, there is a pool called Bethesda in Aramaic, which has five colonnades. And within these lay a large number of the disabled, blind, lame, paralyzed. And one man who was there had been disabled for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and realized that he'd already been there for a long time, he said to him, do you want to get well? So the disabled man answered, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I'm coming, someone goes down ahead of me. Get up, Jesus told him. Pick up your mat and walk. And instantly the man had been healed. This is the Sabbath. So he tells him, pick up your mat, start walking, and that happens. And so the Jews said to this man who had been healed, this is the Sabbath. The law prohibits you from picking up your mat. But he replied, the man who made me well told me, pick up your mat and walk. Who's this man who told you, pick up your mat and walk? They asked him, but the man who was healed did not know who he was. And so he simply said, oh, now I've lost my place, sorry. Uh, but the man who was healed did not know who he was because Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. And after this, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. So do not sin anymore so that something worse doesn't happen to you. But the man went and reported to the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. 
And therefore the Jews began persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Jesus responded to them, my father is still working and I am also working. And this is why the Jews began trying more and more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. So what's happening in this passage? The belief amongst the people of that time was that angels would every now and then appear. This was simply a belief. And they would come and stir this pool called Bethesda. And the first person to then touch the water, get into the pool, they would be healed miraculously. So that was the belief. And all of that happened at this pool called Bethesda in Jerusalem. Now, I'm going to do two quick sidebars today as we just wrestle with some things that people wrestle with in our faith. First quick sidebar. I think very often, especially the younger generation that we are, I think we honestly, if you ask us, do we believe that the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, give us an accurate description of the events of the life of Jesus? I think many people would maybe say so, but they believe it's much more just like a bunch of good stories. So I, our eldest daughter, she was playing with one of our neighbor's kids the other day, and he told her, she had asked him something about the Bible, and he said, the Bible? And he's like, that's just a bunch of silly stories. I think that's how many people believe. You know, you have, you have the Easter bunny, and you have Father Christmas, and you've got these stories about Jesus. You need to outgrow them. And so one of these things is they say, well, because most of these things, we don't even know if it even happened that way, if it's historically accurate, specifically the four Gospels. And so one of these things in this passage, this pool called Bethesda, for years, the Christian community of scholars were ridiculed because they could not find any evidence of this pool. And so they said, you see, once again, just stories being made up. If you can't trust that, how can you trust the words and the deeds and the testimony of Jesus? And then in 1960, this German archaeologist called Konrad Schick, he discovered, as they were digging up parts of Jerusalem, exactly this pool with its five gates. And on top of that, they actually unearthed a Roman temple just adjacent to it. And they realized that this temple was established by the Romans in honor of Asclepius. He was the god of healing and wellness. And so one of these things, how often do we say, man, for a thousand, nine hundred and something years, people ridiculed the fact you see just more lies, just more, you know, mythologizing. And then later on, we realize, actually, these guys, John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, they worked with people who were there, who gave their lives to say, this is a record of the man I used to know as a brother, as a friend, as a teacher, but now I worship him as God. We need to wrestle with who this man is. So what happens? This man that Jesus meets, he'd been ill for 38 years. He was a paraplegic. He'd lost the ability to use his legs. And this area is probably where he then came every day, or he was just there to beg from people to hope that he could be taken to this pool where they believed these angels would heal them. But we need to see the picture of this. This is not, this is not Photoshop. This is, this is a hectic where this guy and all these people around him are because people would basically move him from place to place or he would have to drag himself everywhere. All of his income came from begging. This man had no way to make a living. And as they often would say, most of these men, these paraplegics would have no bladder control. So just the stench and the reality of this man's life, his, his knees and his hands and his elbows were just shot through having to move. So this is not someone that in our modern day, we would say, man, I gravitate toward this person. Please come into our church and be part of our community. We would often pull up our noses to someone like this. But what does Jesus do? 
I believe that we can say, man, God and religion and philosophy, all these things. But I believe Christianity says, do you want to know who God is? Look at Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He goes straight for this filthy, desperate man. And what does he do? He heals him. And so we think, we look at this and we think, you know what? I like Jesus. So many of my friends, they like Jesus. He's a good dude. I mean, who says the name Jesus at an office party and people hiss at you? Or they're like, no, we hate this Jesus. In South Africa, most people have good vibes to this Jesus. Why? Because he's just a good dude. Good teaching, good morals, heals a couple of people. I mean, who can hate on Jesus? He looks like a Swedish, you know, hair model in most of those movies from the Western world. We forget that he's a Middle Eastern man, but he's a good dude. I mean, like, he looks like a good, hippie, nice guy, teaching peace, love. Who can argue with that? But friends, here's the question. Why did these people want to kill him? Is it because he was simply a good man, good teaching, good philosophy, good healer? No, the text says two things. They wanted to put him to death. Why? Number one, because he put himself over authority of even the Sabbath. Even the Jewish festivals and rituals that made Israel what it is, he says, I put myself in over authority of those things. And secondly, it says he made himself equal to God. That's hectic. So let's look at those two things really quickly. The first is the Sabbath issue. So this passage, underline this in your Bible in verse nine, it says, instantly the man got well, he picked up his mat and started to walk. But now this was the Sabbath day. And so the Jews tell him, listen, the law prohibits you from picking up your mat and walking. We need to realize Jerusalem was a hotbed of, of Israelite, Jewish eventually, of zealous religion. You know, the law is not enough for us as the people of Israel. We need to add to the law to make sure people don't mess up. How often is that the church? You're not allowed today. Don't even look at the goals because you'll fall into sin. So we make extra rules to make sure no one sins in the church, right? So that's what was happening. They had 39 rules about what you were not allowed to do on the Sabbath. Not found in the Bible. This is just extra things that they had now added to make sure that people don't mess up. So even today, if you go to a very, very orthodox, conservative Jewish space, the buildings will have lifts, elevators, that stop on the Sabbath day. Normal elevator six days of the week. On the seventh day, Sunday or Saturday then for them, on that seventh day, the lift stops at every, at every level without you having to do anything. Why? Because it is against the law, according to those conservative Jewish people, to operate machinery on the Sabbath. So you can't press the buttons of the lift. So what did they say? We still want to not walk up and down, so we'll make sure the lift just stops at every single level. See, religion, it's so convenient. The rules will make them and will keep them. And so these people look at Jesus and he heals a desperate man. And what do they say? Hallelujah, thank you for healing. No, they say, how could you pick up your mat and walk, man? You've been lying here for 38 years, and now on the Sabbath you do this. How can you do this? You walk into church with a hat on. You come with your skinny jeans. You don't smell nice. This is the house of the Lord, man. They're angry at this guy. So what happens? He claims, as he's arguing with them, he says, you know what, the reason I can do this is because my father is still working and I am working also. So there was a belief that these ultra-Jewish you know, followers had that, yes, you know, we have to rest six days of work and then one day of rest, but God is still working. God is still God. He upholds the universe. People are dying and getting born and all that stuff. So God is obviously still working. 
And Jesus, knowing that belief that the Jewish people had, he says what? Yes, my father is still working on this day and I'm working. So when I see a desperate man, oh yes, I will heal him. Because guess what? The Sabbath was not made for man or man was not made for the Sabbath. Sabbath was made for man. I am the one who established this for the people of Israel. And I'm telling you, I can usurp it. I can step even over the Sabbath because I'm the God of the Sabbath. So yes, I'm working. And the people were angry. Not hippie good man Jesus. Sabbath sinning Jesus. How can you do this? Second thing, he said, he speaks to the sin of this person. Can you believe this, friends? We think healing. Wow, that's incredible. I wish I could see more of that, you know, in the church. Every week, just rolling people in and they walk out. That's incredible. And we do see a lot of that happening in the church. But the incredible thing in this passage is not the healing. It's Jesus. When he meets him again, what does he say in the temple? He says, see, you are well, so do not sin anymore. Lest something even worse happens to you. Now, sidebar again, really quickly. Some people interpret this to say, Christians, you live under such a self-condemning pattern of religion. You look at things that happen in your life, speaking to Christians specifically now, and you say, you see, this is why it's happening. I've sinned again. I failed God again. Why am I sick? It's because I've sinned. Why did I not get this job? It's because I'm such a bad Christian. Why has cancer entered into the, the person that I love the most in the whole world? God is punishing me because I'm not doing well. Is that what this passage is saying? I want you to take just really quickly, and I can't read all of it today, but Luke 13, a couple of passages like this. People come to Jesus and they say, man, we hear that the authorities have slaughtered a bunch of Israelites. What was the sin that they had committed? And you know what Jesus says? There was no sin. The world is just broken. And he says, how about I'll give you an even better example. It's just the other day, Jesus says, the Tower of Siloam had fallen on a bunch of people. Horrible. And he says, you know what? You know who sinned? Whose parents sinned? No one. The world is just broken. But he says to them exactly what he says to this man. But in this moment, in a moment of brokenness, in a moment like our country is in right now, in COVID-19, just the last two, three years, in you know, political upheaval and economic downturn and all these things, you're feeling, man, my future in this country and it's evil and it's all these things. He says, in those moments, we don't have to go to God and say, why are you doing this? What we should rather be saying is, God, but in this moment, what can I understand as to what you want to show to me? What can the evil and the brokenness and the suffering of the world, where can that lead me in my own heart? Because Jesus says to this man, you know what's worse than 38 years of scrounging around on your knees? Sin. There's nothing worse than being disconnected from the very source of life by the Father who loves you. You can lose everything and still have everything. You can have everything and have nothing. If the deepest sickness that infects our country, infects our world, the deepest sickness in our city, friends, is not political issues. The deepest sickness in our city is not even poverty. The deepest sickness in our country is not the ANC or the EFF or the DA. It's sin. All those things, so important. That's why we say as a church, it's social pain, systemic brokenness, but spiritual lostness, yes. We're going to fight for rights. We're going to heal the city of its brokenness. But we realize there's something beneath all those things. And Jesus says, whether this tower falls on someone, whether people get slaughtered, or whether this person was blind, or they were paralyzed. You know what the deeper issue is? 
there is something that you need to, in this moment, take note of. Do you know the Father that loves you? If not for that, what do you have? There's a, there's a moment where Jesus actually, Matthew 9, so famous, where these friends bring their friend Jesus teaching in a house, and this paralyzed friend of theirs, there's so many people in the house, they can't get to Jesus to have him healed, so they break open you know, the panels of this little roof, and they lower him into the space where Jesus is. And what does Jesus do? This guy is paralyzed. It's obvious. And what does Jesus say to him? Your sins are forgiven. <laughs> it's, it's like, uh, Jesus... Guy's paralyzed. Like, that's kind of why we brought him here. You're embarrassing us in front of like a whole community here. But what does Jesus say then to these, again, the Jewish elite so angry at him? He says, what do you think is more difficult? Healing someone or forgiving their sin? And he says, just to show you, he heals the person. So what does he say to them? Listen, there's there's a sickness that we need to fight as a church. The poverty, the struggle, the the, the racism of our city. We need to be a beacon of light. But he says there's something even deeper. Do you want to be healed? But this raises a very, very challenging question. And that is that it seems, and this is the uncomfortable truth of this passage. It seems that Jesus says something about himself that embarrasses you at the office party. He says I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now, what do we do with that? It's like, I like Jesus, but my friend, my colleague, my family member, I've got Jewish friends, I've got Muslim friends, I've got friends who, who just don't believe anything, and they just don't even care. So what does it say about them? I don't want to be that arrogant, ignorant, you know, that condemning person. So what do we do? Let's wrestle with this just for a few minutes. Here's the issue. We would call it what? Exclusivism. We say that Christianity is so exclusive, those narrow-minded Christians. In our city, you're going to find that often, that people say, listen, I'm willing to say in my heart that I'm a Christian, but I don't want to say it out loud, because what would it say about other people? In a a culture where my truth, hashtag my truth, your truth is good as my truth, like why would you say out loud, Jesus? That's offensive. It's actually just the other day, there was an article in this Canadian magazine called McLean, and they said that 30% of Canadians say that they are uncomfortable around Christians, the same percentage as being uncomfortable around drug addicts and child abusers. Why do these Canadians say that? They say the main reason is because Christians are narrow-minded bigots. They believe they've got the truth. This is the reality of the world that we live in, friends. It's the world that we are going to live in more and more. And the truth is many Christians, not just non-Christians, Christians wrestle with this issue. Not too long ago in our community group, sitting with two of the men in our group that evening, we just had a social, we chatting, and the one guy, he's a doctor, they've now moved out of the city. And I remember him saying, listen, dude, so many of my medical friends working in the hospital with me, some of them are Muslim, um, you know, some of them are Hindu, some of them are atheists, outspoken atheists. I really find it distasteful to say that Jesus is the way. He said, it's not that I don't believe it. I just, I just can't imagine that that's the truth for everyone. He was wrestling with this issue. We've got a good friend who moved two years ago to Luxembourg, very post-Christian environment. Another friend, I spoke to him just on Friday, he's moved to Scotland. And both of them in very secular post-Christian environments say, man, it's difficult to be a Christian because Christian is like saying you're a pedophile. Everyone's like, what? Get away. Don't. Don't hold these beliefs around us. Get away. It's difficult. 
couple of years ago, I was invited by the University of the Free State to help the SRC with some sessions on leadership. So excited about this. And just before the first session starts, I'm just making like small talk with the guys on the front here. And this one guy, the moment that he heard I'm a pastor, he starts laying into me in front of the whole like, you know, front row here. And he's like, seriously, dude, you believe that this Jesus guy and all this? And he just goes for it. He like recounts a whole Sam Harris book for me there and all his arguments. And he's saying, listen, I think it's ridiculous that all your religions argue about these things because you're all equally wrong. I stand there. Wow. Okay, guys, let's speak about leadership. (laughs) So this is the country that we live in, friends. South Africa is a melting pot. It's a mosaic of so many beliefs. (laughs) We're not Scandinavia. We've got everything. We are a poiki course of people in this country. And delicious. But you you don't know what you're going to get. You take a bite in your office, in your circle of friends, and you're going to get something of everything. And in this context, we're saying, man, how can you believe in a Jesus who makes claims like this? It's embarrassing, man. I don't want to stand at a braai and be that guy, that Christian guy. I get that. And I want to say that maybe many of you have a couple of friends that would outspokenly say, listen, I'm an atheist, I'm agnostic, but I think many of us know cultural Christians in our city who would just say, I just find it distasteful. To be honest, like I, I'm happy to have my private faith, but public faith, it's not for me. I don't want to rock the boat. I just want to be a lacquer oak in my class, you know, in my office. I don't want to, yes, but, not brew. I don't want to be that guy. Just be a lacquer oak. So what are, we, what are we fighting for when we say all this? What's the opposite of being exclusive? Is inclusive. Man, that is the rallying cry of 2022. Inclusive. Let's be inclusive and loving to everyone. So if you go into any bookstore, one of the most popular areas in the bookstore will be a new age religion, self-help. And all those books, Deepak Chopra and Oprah and all the us, they basically will say the same thing. All truth is truth. All religions lead, it's all just different parts up the same mountain. So we can put together something that just makes us all feel warm and fuzzy on the inside. Why choose when we can just have this whole thing? Kumbaya, take hands, coexist, you know, let's, let's be together. But here's the challenge with that. I'll give an example. So who's watched Teledega Nights? Huh? The Ballad of Ricky Bobby, Will Ferrell, no one. Kevin, you must have watched it. Oh, guys, disappointing. Okay, thank you, Michaela. Now, in this movie, Will Ferrell, he's a, he's a NASCAR driver, and at one point, uh, he's losing his mind a bit at this stage, midlife crisis, and so he thinks that he's had this massive crash on the track, and he gets out of his car, and he starts running around on the track, takes off his clothes, he's in his underpants, and he's running around, he thinks he's on fire, and he shouts out the following, he says, help me, Jesus, help me, Jewish God, help me, Allah. Help me, Tom Cruise. Um, Use your witchcraft on me to get the fire off me. Help me, Oprah Winfrey. So what are we hearing? This is the comedic soft version of what most young people believe. If you're going to hedge your bets on some kind of religion type thing, just put your money on everything. Spread your money on all of it. Somewhere we'll find the thing. You can ask actually a couple of famous spokespeople for this. One of the most famous rabbis in America at the moment, Rabbi Shmuley Botiach, difficult to pronounce that one. He says, I'm absolutely against any religion that says one faith is superior. He calls it spiritual racism. 
Mahatma Gandhi, famous worker of, of peace in our world, he says, my position is that all great religions are fundamentally equal. Oprah Winfrey, one of the biggest mistakes humans make is to believe there's only one way. Actually, there are many diverse paths leading to God. This is the world we live in, friends. Now, I get this. Because as Christians, we want to say, man, I, I want to be someone who works for peace and for good. I want to love my neighbor. I want to be someone in the city who's not divisive and who's you know, violent towards others. I want to be someone who brings peace. Right? That's who we want to be. That's good. And here's the two beautiful things. We can speak about it a lot, but I'll just mention two things. Is I believe Christianity actually gives us the tools to be able to do that. Because we believe, the Bible says, that every person is created in the image of God. There's common grace upon every person's life, even though sin has, has twisted and broken that. So that means that, yes, there are many, many good, true things that many people from different perspectives will know, that will believe. It means that my atheist friend can be more moral than I am. Nothing wrong with that. Because there is something of a resemblance to the image of God upon people, even more so. Christians can have the confidence that we can work together with people of other religions and beliefs for the common good of our city. I can work with a Muslim brother, with an atheist brother to say, let's tackle the issues of our city. But here's the key. Cooperation does not equal belief. I don't have to agree with you in order to work with you. So we can say, let us be the people of this country regardless of belief. Let us love the people. We can even fight for the rights of people to believe whatever they want in this country. Islam is a system where you legislate belief. Christianity is not like that, friends. You cannot legislate people's beliefs. You cannot outlaw non-Christian views. We can actually fight to say, I fight in the legislature of our country politically, that this friend, this guy can believe what he wants. But none of that means that I have to agree with him. That has no bearing on truth. So we can be peacemakers. We can be people who make a great country out of South Africa and at the very same time say, I believe there's something very unique about this Jesus. And we have to wrestle with the fact that, friends, Christianity is not alone in saying this. Like, yeah, but you Christians, can you just let go of this Jesus thing? Flip it. Like, can we just all believe and all love? How many Hollywood stars have you heard where they just go and say, I've read all the books. I've read the Bible. I've read the Quran. I've read the Vedas. I've read it all. It's all the same. It means you've not read any of it. Let me just give you three examples. All the faiths, all the worldviews are exclusive, friends. Islam is exclusive. It teaches that there is one God, Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. And in the Islam version of heaven, you go to heaven because you have accepted the authority of Allah. Friends, Hinduism and Buddhism are exclusive against one another. Buddhism began when the Buddha, eventually as he became to, to be known, he walked away from his Hindu background. And he rejected the Vedas and the teachings of Hinduism. And another faith was started. Those two things are exclusive. And of course, if you're an atheist, you say, here's the answer. You are all wrong. None of those things can sit together and, and be conquered by hashtag my truth. Your truth, my truth. No, friends. So this is not unique to us. We have to realize that all worldviews are exclusive in their own way. So what do we do? Here's the big issue. And this is not easy to say, but it's the reality. Is that to say that it's just all one big part is actually just not logical. 
Because we're saying one thing can be true and another thing can be true at the same time. So what's happening is, you know, people that say, I'm in, I'm, I want to be inclusive, I want to be loving, I want to be good. So I propose that all religions are the same. But I think then we at least have to admit that that is not logical or humble in any way. Why am I saying that? Because basic research into any faith will show you that they make belief statements that cannot be squared with one another. Regardless of what Will Smith says, that he's read all of them, no, you go and read them and you will see they make statements of belief. So Tim Keller, he's a pastor from America, he tells a story where once in New York, they got invited to a panel of interfaith discussion and he represented Christianity and they had a a Muslim imam there and they also had a, a Jewish scholar there. And he says all three of them is at a university. So a whole bunch of students like we have here today sitting there listening. And he said all of them, all three of these men agreed on this statement by the end. If Christians are right about Jesus being God, the Muslims and Jews fail in a serious way to love God as God really is. But if Muslims and Jews are right that Jesus is not God, but rather a teacher or a prophet, then Christians fail in a serious way to love God as he really is. And he said, the men agreed upon that, but the students hated it. They said, this is bigotry. How can you say this? The moment you actually dive into any religion or faith or worldview, you will realize that some things are true. Friends, the ancient Ammonites, we read about them in the Bible. They had the belief that that the god Moloch asked us to sacrifice babies by throwing them into fires and beating drums so loudly that it would drown out their screams. That's also religion. Is that equally true? Is that my truth? Is your truth? All these things can't be true at the same time. And here's the rub. It sounds so beautiful to say we all right. But do you realize that that's actually saying you judge mental, religious people. But we realize that's actually the most judgmental position to take. I've got the whole truth, and I'm telling you, none of you have got the truth. So I'll give you this. This is, for me, the best example to remember this of. Illustration. Leslie Newbegin, he was a missionary to India for 30 years, and he said often as he was sharing the gospel with people in India at that time, they would come back to him with this story. This story had taken root in the Indian culture. They call it the blind men and the elephant. Maybe you've heard of it. And they say it's the story of these men. They're all blind, and they're walking on this path, and they come upon an elephant, And the one guy grabs the leg and another guy's at the tail and the one's at the trunk and the one's like holding on the ear and they blind. So they feeling and and the guy's like, what what is this thing? And the guy at the leg says, man, it's sturdy and it's it's like big. So I think it's a tree. And the guy at the tail says, no, it's like floppy and long. I think it's a snake. It's like a rope. And this guy at the ear says, no, man, this thing is like flat and it's floppy like this. I think it's, it's like a leaf. And what was the point of the story? It's supposed to push you back. And so you see, so all the religions, all the views of the world, they've just got a bit of the truth. No one's got the whole elephant, man. Let's stand together. We've all got just a leg or a trunk or an ear, but at the end of the day, it's all the same. But Leslie Newbigin says, the very point this story is trying to make, it makes the very opposite point. Because it says, you judgmental blind people, holding onto a leg, saying, this leg, it's your Jesus, is the truth. How can you say that? You've just got a part of it. But what is he saying? The storyteller is in the most judgmental position of all. He says, you are all blind because I can see the whole truth. I see the elephant for what it is. And I'll tell you from my place of judgment, none of you guys have got the truth. 
So the most inclusive peacemaking position in our world is the most exclusive thing you can ever say. None of you guys have the truth. So what am I saying, friends? Two things can't be true at the same time. Who's watched Top Gun yet? The second one. Anyone? Yes, Michaela once again. You guys couldn't resist the danger zone, right? My parents watched it last night, and my dad just sends this message on our family group, and he says he is a massive fan. You guys couldn't, that 80s nostalgia got you guys right in the arm, right? So he says he couldn't resist, and he loves Top Gun. And he makes the statement last night, Top Gun 2 is better than Top Gun 1. Controversial statement. Now, what if I say to my dad, I hear you, I agree, Top Gun 1 is better than Top Gun 2. And he says, yes, I agree, Top Gun 2 is better than Top Gun 1. Top Gun 1 is better than Top Gun 2. Peace in our family, right? No, you can't do that. You have to choose which Tom Cruise you want. You can't have both, friends. To say that these things are all true is saying that nothing's true. It's saying there is no truth. So what's the solution as we finish off today? I would simply say this, friends, yes. Christians can be so judgmental. I can be so judgmental. I can think I've got it all figured out. Man, I'm high and mighty here from my, from my Christian perspective. These lost people in our city. Oh, man. The church can be like that so often. But here's the beautiful thing. Jesus, we couldn't read this passage, but in chapter 5, verse 24, listen to what Jesus says about himself. We can judge Christianity on the Christians. We can judge Christianity on the church. We can judge Christianity on history. You can even judge Christianity peace be with you on my life. Oh man, that's shocking stuff. Or I can judge Christianity on the Christ of Christianity. He says this in verse 24, truly I tell you, as he speaks to these Jewish leaders, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not come under judgment, but has passed from death to life. Verse 26, for just as the Father has life in himself, so also he's granted the Son to have life in himself. Jesus says, listen, I'm not going to point you to the way. Here is the truth that you can go and live. Here's a life you can attain. He says, no, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And here is the humble invitation that I want us to make that I think Jesus is asking you today. What does he ask this man when he comes upon him? He says this in verse six. When Jesus saw him lying there and he realized that he'd been lying there for a long time, what did he say to him? Do you want to get well? Friends, if you think the picture of the Christian church is the high and mighty arrogant, we need to get the voice of the Christian church back and tell the culture what to do. No, this is the picture of the Christian church. The beggar lying there for 38 years saying, Jesus, I have my dream job. I finally have attained the body that I've always wanted, the spouse I've always wanted. Or I'm lying and I'm saying, God, this country's a mess. My dreams are a mess. And Jesus comes to you. He says, when Jesus saw the man, he comes to him and he doesn't say, are you good? Are you moral? Are you strong? He says this, do you want to be well? And this man doesn't even know who Jesus is yet. He's got no PhD in theology. But it says when he believed, it says instantly. The man was well. 
Friends, I want us to be a church, just two things. I want us to be a church that does not point to you, to me, to this building, to this brand called Doxodeo. I want us to simply be a church. He says, you know what? I don't have it all figured out. I don't think I'm superior to you. In fact, I think you are a much more moral and good person than I am. But you know where my journey started is I was just a beggar and a man walked past and he said, no, I call you son. I raise you as as a child of God. I'm not better than you. This man has just come to reveal himself. And you know what I want to say to you? Not that that you're stupid, that you're ignorant. All I want to ask you is just come and see. Just come and see him. It wasn't my doing. When he came, I just believed. And instantly. My life's not perfect. But it was never the same again. All I'm asking you, friend, is just come and see. Can we be the kind of church who invites people not to who we are, what we can do, not to Doxodale, but to Jesus? Just say, come and see. Can we be the kind of community who says, man, of course we're not ignorant. Of course we're not high and mighty because we are the beggars that have become the sons and the daughters. So come and belong even before you believe. Come and see. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray this morning that you would just captivate our hearts again. It's not a message of of exclusive judgment, but a message of a Jesus who comes to ask every heart in our city, do you want to be well? God, will you come and just soften our hearts again? We are no longer beggars, God. We are sons. But come and show us again the desperation of the people of our city. Come and show us again the beauty of who you are. Captivate our hearts again. Make us the kind of community, God, that has an exclusive Jesus, but an inclusive love for everyone. May you just rise above, God, every challenge. May you rise above every brokenness, God. May you rise above every bit of arrogance in our hearts. We want to know you and love you, Jesus. In your name we pray.